Hello, my name is John Hamel. Welcome to the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Program's ongoing series of podcasts on Intimate Partner Violence, or IPV. The Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs, more commonly known by its acronym ADVIP, is an international organization of batterer intervention programs and mental health professionals who provide treatment for perpetrators of IPV, as well as researchers with an expertise in the field. The purpose of ADVIP is to advance evidence-based practice and lower rates of intimate partner violence in our communities. In this podcast series, Various experts offer their thoughts, research findings, and clinical experience on topics related to the causes, characteristics, consequences, assessment, and treatment of IPV. Podcast number one and additional selected podcasts are available for free to everyone. Others are free only to ADVIP members. To join ADVIP, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net and click on the Join ADVIP link on our homepage. Again, go to www.domesticviolenceintervention.net. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is John Hamel. This is uh, another in our series of podcasts for the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs. Today, we're going to be talking to Sandy Stith, uh, about couples counseling in cases of domestic violence. Uh, Sandy is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a university distinguished professor at Kansas State University. She received funding from NIH to develop and test a treatment program for couples who choose to stay together after intimate partner violence. Her work is published in many journal articles and four co-authored books including a 2011 book published by the American Psychological Association called Couples Therapy for Domestic Violence, Finding Safe Solutions. I've read the book, it's fantastic. Sandy is one of the world's leading and most respected experts in the field of domestic violence in general, and she's clearly uh, the forefront of innovative uh, strategies for working with high conflict uh, couples who've experienced domestic violence. So, Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I, I, I'm honored to be invited. Thanks. So just so you know, Sandy, this is, I think, um, number seven in our series of podcasts. Some of the podcasts, uh, the organization ADVIP is making available to the public for free. Most of the podcasts will only be available to podcast, uh, excuse me, to, to ADVIP members. This podcast will be available to the general public, so I think everyone's looking forward to hearing it. Um, let me start off by uh, let me start off with just a you know kind of an obvious question, given that as you know, couples counseling for domestic violence is a bit controversial or can be in some circles. Um, so, how do you decide if um, if couples treatment is appropriate? Some people would say it's never appropriate, but what are your criteria for determining whether a couple should be seen uh, by a therapist when there's been any kind of domestic violence in a relationship? You know, one of the that's such a good question because I used to believe I worked at a shelter for victims of violence for many years, and I used to believe you would never do couples counseling. And then, as a marriage and family therapist and as a director of a graduate program in family therapy, we 
found that many of the couples who came in, they didn't come in because of violence. They came in because of conflict. And when they trusted the therapist and when they were able to open up, we found out that there was violence, even though they denied it at the beginning. And so then at that point to say, okay, no, you can't come back next week, wasn't really gonna work. And that's really why I decided to seek funding and to develop and test a program that could be used. So we have some really important inclusion exclusion criteria. First of all, we really we we really believe it's important that you interview both partners separately, privately, and you find out do they want couples counseling? Are they being pressured into coming? Are they really wanting out but their partners demanding that they come? Those would not be appropriate. Right. We also want them both if they want to try to make this relationship work versus I really want out and I'm just doing this to mark time. Those are not couples that we would see. We would exclude, we ask each of them, and we'll talk maybe a little bit later about screening, but we ask them about violence that they've perpetrated and that they've received. And we exclude couples when there's a big discrepancy. So I had a couple one time and she, he said to his other therapist, in private practice that he shoved his wife once. So she referred them to visit with our program. And he said, she, she said he strangled her. He knocked her unconscious. There's been ongoing power and control and violence. And she's terrified of him. They would not be appropriate for couples counseling, even though the therapist who referred the man thought it was a one-time shove. Uh, and I want very little discrepancy. And then if there is discrepancy, I wanna know if I've shared this with your partner in the room, would that would you feel safe? Do you think that could be, be dangerous? Oh, yes, I don't want him to know that I told you how much he drinks or how he uses cocaine, or I don't want him to know what you told me that's not couples therapy. These are couples who come in, uh, neither partner reports fear, neither partner reports that they're pressured to come. Uh, we also look for untreated serious mental illness or substance abuse. So if there's ongoing problems and the violence always occurs when he's drinking or she's drinking, but they're not addressing the drinking, then they wouldn't be appropriate for couples counseling. So I'm just I'm very cautious about severe violence, but I have worked with couples where there has been severe violence. Both people talk about it when they come in for the intake. Uh, that both people are open about what has happened and about how they want to be different than that, and we have accepted them. When we originally thought we we thought we would exclude if the violence was had been more severe, but now we've come to realize. It, it's more about openness, discrepancy, fear, uh, coercion or not coercion. And, and and the other thing is the program that we developed and the program I would recommend for folks would be uh, adaptable. So you might think you would try to work with a couple, you start with a very psychoeducational, not going right into whether or not he did or didn't have an affair. Uh, you can change your mind and decide, no, I think they would do better with individual. Well, Sandy, one, one of the things I wanted to just uh, res- respond to really quickly here is um, 
this sort of a looks like an uh, evolution in your thinking around you know how to who to accept so it sounds to me like um, now the 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 one of the major criterion is um, a lack of a strong power imbalance as opposed to strictly the level of the violence. That, that makes sense. Um, there are couples who um, may have both, you know, both parties may have come from a high conflict family. They may both be impulsive. Maybe they drink. Um, and when they get angry, they shove and they throw things. And it's the violence looks more severe than with some of these other high conflict couples. And yet, you know, the, the, they may not be the highly controlling types of individuals that we see. In other words, they're not stalking the partners or constantly uh, checking their whereabouts or, or trying to uh, intimidate them. So um, does that sound about right? In other words, they, they, may, they, may, they may blame each other a lot and engage in a lot of dirty fighting, what we call dirty fighting, but uh, and maybe there's more violence than, you, than in your average high conflict couple, and yet they're really dedicated. So. And this is what we learned over time. You know, like I said, I began when I first submitted the NIH grant, I said if there was, you know, a level of violence that's more severe, they would be excluded. But I've seen couples, I had uh, one couple, the husband had his hands around his wife's throat. She was starting to turn blue when he let go of her. And we know that that is a risk factor for intimate partner homicide. Strangulation is one of the most severe types of violence. But as soon as he let go of her, he just started sobbing. He said, this is exactly the way my father was. This is not the person I want to be. He heard about our program. He picked up the phone and called and said, I really need help. I want this relationship. When I get angry, I see my father in me, and I want to be a different kind of person. And she really wanted to come. We met with them both separately. We might meet with them separately several times before we make a final decision if this is appropriate. But that would have been a kind of uh, couple I would have excluded and they were very successful outcome at, you know, at the end of the treatment. They had a marriage that felt like what they wanted. So uh, I, I would have excluded them, but it's I've learned it's much more about that power and control, the fear, the uh, yeah, openness to admit, yes, I take responsibility. You know, it's one of the things that a lot of the offender programs emphasize is that offender accountability or each of us being accountable for what we are and what we do. And that's sort of a big part of our program also, but it's a little different in that I, I recognize if I were slapping my husband and shoving and I'm able to admit it. Um, and I don't want to be that kind of person. So, yeah, well, as you know, Sandy, I've been doing better intervention offender programs for many years and, I would estimate that, uh, you know, my, I'd say probably, I'd say a majority of clients that are in my groups um, would probably be suitable for couples counseling. In California, we have mandatory arrest laws. So we get a lot of uh, clients who are referred to us for low level offenses. Uh, but of course, uh, these men and women aren't always with, with a partner. Most of them are no longer with their partner. So uh, are you getting referrals uh, from various sources, not just batter intervention programs, but I'm other therapists. I mean, how, what are your sources of clients come? You know, where does that come from? And a lot of them come from Child Protective Services because they're uh, high conflict couples where there might be a child that they're concerned about. Is this child in a safe environment? And so they might uh, recommend that they do some couples counseling. Uh, so we have, and then we have 
therapists in the community who are insecure about working with couples when there's been violence, like the one I mentioned, the woman who said, thought that they would be appropriate and we excluded them. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, so there's a variety of sources. The, the One of the biggest concerns I continue to have, because I do a lot of training for family therapists, is uh, that some of us as clinicians don't do a very good job of really screening. The couple comes in, they're middle class, they look happy, and we assume this is a couple that just needs to improve communication, and we don't even know that there is violence, because I think there's a lot of therapists who don't even really ask about violence, and uh, you don't know that you're seeing. When I've done training with family therapists, and how many of you have worked over three years, and people raise their hand, how many of you who've worked over three years have never seen a couple with violence, shoving, pushing, anything like that? And there are people who raise their hand. And my thinking is there are people who don't do a very good job screening because right. it's yeah. so common in high-conflict couples that pushing, shoving, hitting is happening, and you may not even know about it. So we see a lot of like standard couples that just come in for couples counseling. And when we do a good screening, we find out, yes, that when they get angry, there has been shoving, pushing, hitting. Yeah. But it's not the power and control coercive, you know, stalking, like you said, victim living in fear, hiding in the closet. You know, I've worked at the shelter with battered women who are hiding in the closet. Those people wouldn't be appropriate for couples therapy. Right. Right. Well, let, let me just tell you, uh, Sandy, that the uh, the Association of Domestic Violence Intervention Programs, our, our membership includes not just uh, people who do batter intervention programs for offenders, but it also includes marriage and family therapists who work with couples. And uh, uh, with that in mind, um, can you go ahead and explain your, your screening process in more detail uh, uh, so that um, therapists out there maybe who don't have a specific expertise in domestic violence can uh, at least learn some preliminary uh, skills so that they, they don't rush in and, and maybe make things worse by trying to help a couple where there's that, you know, like you say, power and control kind of behaviors. Well, tell us about your basic kind of, you know, screening 101, so to speak. Okay, so number one is I believe if you're working with a couple is meeting with them separately for screening. Uh, there was a day in the 80s when I was learning to be a marriage and family therapist that uh, I was told don't keep don't put don't keep secrets, don't meet separately, you end up triangling and I totally throw that out the window now because I see so much violence going on that uh, if we don't meet separately we have a wife for instance could be a husband could be whatever uh, quiet, not making eye contact, looking down. We don't know if they're just a shy person or they're afraid to speak. So I would never work with a couple without meeting them both separately. When I meet with them separately, I always have some um, surveys, measures for them to fill out. We use the conflict tactic scale, Murray Strauss's scale that talks about violence that they perpetrate and they receive. We also use the audit, uh, alcohol use disorders. We use a relationship satisfaction measure. But there are easier, simpler tools you can use, but they fill them out separately. No one can look on the other one's shoulder. We also use two therapists. So uh, one therapist might be meeting with one partner while the other meets with the other partner if they come at the same hour. 
we look at what they said. So you say on here that there have been a few times when you pushed him. So let's talk about that. So we use those measures, you know, in our assessment and in our discussion. Uh, and we find that, uh, and actually Dan O'Leary in some research some years ago found the same thing, that people are more likely to report uh, some level of violence on a measure than if you ask. I mean, the worst I hear from learning therapists is, have you ever been violent? Has he ever been violent? Well, no, I've never been violent. No, he's, well, yeah, there's pushing, shoving, but it's not violent. So I ask about specific acts. And then I ask, is this something we can talk about in therapy? So like really, the issue of, I used to think I would exclude for uh, problems with alcohol. And when I first started, I had, I used the Michigan alcohol screening test and I found majority of the people who came to our program scored as problematic with regards to the Michigan alcohol screening test, which asks, have you ever been drunk? Have you ever? Mm-hmm. And most, or at least a high level of the people who we've been successful at treating would score as though they've ever had a problem. Mm-hmm. So we look more specifically at when those incidents occur, have occurred, is alcohol involved or other drugs involved? And we assess for alcohol, for depression, and you know, uh, overall substance use and uh and then how that affects the way they handle conflict. Because some people really can't start working on couples work until they really do seriously work on their own uh, addiction issues, drinking issues. We encourage both partners separately when we meet with them to do some of their own work before they start doing couples work. So we might keep them, but we might be meeting with them separately, one focusing in on their drinking and the other one focusing in on other kinds of issues that are struggling they're struggling with in their lives before we'd start doing conjoint sessions or we might refer them out to an alcohol treatment program or batter program or what what other else is available that makes a lot of sense uh, i just want to tell the listeners that an earlier podcast featured ronald potter efron who uh, talks about substance abuse and domestic violence. And one of, one of the ways I try to get information about this, Sandy, is I ask clients who come into our batters program, um, what percentage of the time yeah. when, when you've been violent or verbally abusive, were you under the influence? And that gives us a sense of whether alcohol abuse is related. Because uh, sometimes the, the people drink too much, but it's not necessarily directly related to the violence. And sometimes it's directly related, right? Absolutely. And I, I've asked that exact question because if really, I don't remember ever being violent when I wasn't drunk. Well, then the drinking has got to be resolved. If I've got a violence problem and it's always related to alcohol, but I don't want to stop drinking, we can learn all kinds of different ways of communicating. But when I get drunk, I don't remember those new ways of communicating. I'm going to get violent. So... Anything else about the screening process that we should know about? Well, it's an ongoing process. One of the things I've also heard therapists say, oh, I screen them, you know, before we start and then we move on. But what what I do, every single session, uh, we we have two, as I said, co-therapists, and we begin before we start a conjoint piece uh, meeting separately. So what happened this week? How did it go? What went well? You know, what didn't go well? Has there been any shoving, pushing? So you can't 
just do screening before you start, and in my opinion. And uh, as people get more secure, comfortable with you, or as you know, they get more comfortable with each other and start to bring up difficult issues, the violence can recur or continue. So it, it's definitely an ongoing process, screening. Right. And as you know, people come in for counseling, first session, really happy to be there. And there's that honeymoon period, right, Right, where they're, you know, really trying really hard. They're not really addressing their core issues uh, so much. They're focusing on communication. And then at some point, you know, that big issue that causes them to fight a lot rears its ugly head. And, and so, you know, you never know when they're going to act out. Right. So, and, and we also, we begin the ending, the session with a screen, an individual session, and then uh, the two therapists talk to each other for a minute about everything's good. And then at the end of the session, we also meet separately. How did the session go for you? Uh, when you're partner brought up this issue how was that for you and because sometimes we are surprised even no matter how experienced we are that a partner is really angry and you it's hard to see because they are really good at you know controlling their anger in the session and so then we need to do some uh soothing some calming or maybe put in a timeout because uh, we don't want to send them home in the car where one of them is enraged by what the other one said, if if you understand what I'm saying. So it's an ongoing process. Screening is not over. And we continue to look at it and see if some incident happens, what got in the way and what led to that and how can we fix that. So uh, go ahead and tell me, uh, Sandy, about the uh, types of treatment models that you use, uh, it sounds like you probably use some kind of a systemic approach. And uh, what else? I mean, what are, you know, what are the, the models that you draw from? Well, the number one model that's guided uh, this, this program in particular is solution focused. Uh, the work of Into Kimber and uh, Steve DeShazer, uh, that looking at what's going well and how did you make that happen? So many times, a lot of the folks, when we, especially when we had NIH funding, they had to have uh, been through a batterer program before they could start our program. At that point, uh, in the 90s, there was no way they were going to fund it unless it was after a fender program. And so a lot of people felt in some of those programs that they felt put on the spot or uh, they felt like they were... Um, I don't know if criticize is the right word, but we start off with how did you make that happen? Where did you do that? So it sounds like you're really doing something something different this week and that you were able to have a good conversation. So we're always looking at building on strengths. And I feel like that sort of changes really motivational interviewing, positive psychology. Uh, we, we say solution focused, but it's that same sort of really positive approach. We also have been influenced by cognitive behavioral or John Gottman's work. John Gottman does a lot of uh, really important work that is helping people uh, ha deal with conflict, discuss things in a different way, you know, soften startup. So if, you know, I would definitely recommend uh, training in Gottman's work or uh, 
CBT for couples that sort of looking at skills and strategies also. Yeah, meta communicating. Um, uh, what's that term that he uses uh, for um, repair attempts, right? Right, exactly. So that we do a lot of practicing, like if you, I mean, it really, it, some of it depends on the individual couple or the group of couples, because we offer this in single couple or multi-couple group, depending upon who comes in and how it works out in your community. But uh, so if the single couple is really struggling with every time they start to have a conversation, uh, it just goes south and they end up stomping out. Uh, so we talk a lot about soften startup. We practice that, you know, different ways that you could say, you don't know if you really want to go to your mother-in-law's for Christmas. How can you say it in a way that would just totally irritate your partner versus not? And there sometimes there are even not examples that they're struggling with, but that some couples struggle with and they practice that. So we do use skill training as part of this uh, and a lot of that came from Gottman's work and the work of other uh, couple therapists. Uh, I think there was, a, well, I know there was a there was a study that you did at some point, comparing multi couples groups and um, regular couples counseling. And I, as I recall, you found that the multi couples group was more effective in some respects. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Right. I. Uh... This really surprised us. Our NIH uh, program officer really encouraged me if I wanted to get funding to use a multi-couple and a single couple because the cost in a like Los Angeles, uh, you know, in large communities to do individual couple with two therapists is too much. So adding a multi-couple group uh, would be less, much more cost efficient. So I had in my mind as a couple therapist that individual couple therapy would just target on what the individual needs and that would be more effective. And I was surprised that for men in particular, in almost every single factor, women and men both reduced violence in both uh, groups. So whether single couple, multi-couple, the violence reduced significantly. But in many of the other variables, uh, the multi-couple group, the men did much better for in, in almost everything. And I came to conclude, and you do a lot more groups than I do, so you probably have opinions on this, but that women have lots of out, more outlets of where we talk about our emotions and our feelings. And to be in a group with other men in the group where you encourage each other, you support each other, you discuss difficult issues, really had a powerful effect in addition to uh, just reducing the violence. It's depression, anxiety, uh, yeah, relationship satisfaction, lots of variables for the men. They did better in the multi-couple group. Right. I, and I, so I agree with you. I, I think for all those reasons, I do couples counseling. And uh, typically in, in regular couples counseling, the men... And with ex there are exceptions, but for the most part, I would say that men tend to, to come in and, well, usually it's the wife that, you know, convinced them to come to counseling. So they come in somewhat reluctantly and um, they uh, they kind of defer to the wife and say, well, you know, she, she's she got these complaints. And then they, they don't seem as invested. And then, uh, you know, when we've done some multi-couples groups from time to time, uh, as you say, uh, the men are, like maybe the men just feel some solidarity with the other men or maybe... 
maybe the fact that there's other couples maybe it normalizes their problems so they don't feel as stigmatized. Do you, do you think that might be true? Yeah, I think both of those. I think there is that uh, support for, from other men that's really missing because it didn't, it wasn't the same for women. Women didn't do better. Right. They were similarly changing uh, for men and for both treatment facility programs, but yeah, uh, but uh, for men, that's you know having other men to model to watch how they dealt with uh, their partners to get support from seemed to really uh, add a bonus. But but sometimes in small communities where I live now, we mostly do single couple in Manhattan, Kansas, because we don't get six couples available on Thursday nights. Very- <laughs> It's tricky. And I was in Washington D.C. in the, you know, at Virginia Tech for 20 years. We did more couples through our multi-couple group because we could get a, a group. But in a small town, it's it's harder. So you know, what might be good is uh, at this point, Sandy, is if you could sort of uh, give the listener a sense of maybe think of a particular couple or the average couple. And give us a sense of what you know what they go through in the program from the, the point where they the intake to the point where they're moving on in their lives and what do they typically experience and uh, and then after that maybe you can give me a summary of uh, recent research that you've conducted any new findings uh, from your uh, laboratory well this because this program was designed uh, to be tested empirically it's designed as an 18-week program. Right now, I've been doing a lot of work that's really exciting to me with folks in Finland, in Iran, in Colombia, in Mexico, and um, people are adapting the program to test in their communities because 18 weeks might be too long. I'm also doing a lot of military work. I was in your area doing uh, Navy training last year um, and they also have adapted the program. So the program as designed is 18 weeks, single couple or multi-couple. And uh, the single couple has two therapists. You meet the first week. And we call this session Honoring the Problem. We originally, as solution-focused therapists, would start off what's going well, how did you make that happen? That felt really disrespectful to people. People really wanted to, this is individual. I'm meeting alone with one partner, you're meeting with the other partner. But I want to, tell me what brought you here. What are some of the struggles you're facing? Tell me about the challenges. We've already done the intake. The intake might have been done by somebody else. But um, so they want to know that you understand how difficult their life is before we can start looking about what's going well. So that's basically, and we talk about group rules if there's a group, but that's first session. Second session with single couple, we do a miracle question, which is uh, everybody, you probably know, you know, most people would know that, but therapists, but it's really, if you wake up and the miracle happened and you didn't know it, it happened while you were asleep, what would be the first small steps, things you would notice? And it's almost everybody. I've done this for a long time they want a smile. They want a holding my hand. They want a little kindness. They don't want a new house and a beautiful new car. That's not the first thing they'd notice. They would just notice smiling or kindness or chatting. 
So we're sort of beginning to develop that vision of what you want in this relationship. When we do the multi-couple group, we use uh, the house of a, we call it the strong marital house. And we ask people to look at um, what are some of the pieces. So they might say communication. And we would talk about what would that look like? How would you know you had strong communication? We, we would talk about, we're trying to develop a vision in the second session. So they know not just, it's not about just ending violence. It's about having a relationship that you're going to be proud of and you're going to be happy with. Uh, we do in the third session, we do a lot of psychoed. And if I were not doing a particular evidence base, follow my rule, my guidelines specifically each, there might be differences, how long you would spend on, the psychoeducational part. I, I find, and I don't know if you find this too, uh, that it's always surprising to me when you talk about like the cycle of violence and you talk, this is separate, you know, separate gender, whether it's men and women or uh, one partner and another partner. People didn't realize, oh my gosh, that is what happens. They don't realize that, they also don't realize that things besides physical violence is actually violence. They think I, I haven't ever hit him, but I have told him he's a lazy slob, but I didn't realize that that could be called violence also. So we're all talking about our own, and we're just talking about basic psychoeducational about violence. And I always find people are like really eye-opening, and it always surprises me. But uh, And that can take more than one session. It depends on how much you want I mean, what I remember one man that I met with who was a special ops person, and he said he was trained to intimidate. That's what he did in the military. I said, and, and he knows he does that at home to his wife. And I said, what about to your children? He said, no. I said, and they're teenagers. I said, what if I ask them to come in next week? And he had a long thought, and he said, yeah, I guess I do intimidate, yeah. So like to recognize, for me to recognize what I do and for uh, my partner to recognize what they do, I don't also look at it as the couples that I'm seeing, I don't look at it as the victim and the offender because most of us in our relationships have some ways that we're psychologically aggressive or uh, things that we do that might be leveled, some level of psychological aggression um, and then that then we move into we we started mindfulness uh, in session four, but I probably might have might change that to starting it right from the beginning. Do you, John, do you do mindfulness in your work? Yes, I've always uh, included meditation and relaxation exercises, but we you know we would fit them in somewhere in the curriculum. But um, after becoming aware of the uh, recent recent outcome studies on the uh, acceptance and commitment therapy approach. Amy Zarling and uh, Erica Lawrence have uh, put out research showing that this is a very effective approach for working with uh, domestic violence offenders. Since then, I've, I've, uh, I've made it mandatory that we, we begin every group with, a, med- with a, a mindfulness meditation exercise, and it makes a huge, I think it makes a huge difference. We have, we're not doing any outcome studies, but the men uh, at first seemed to be a little awkward, you know, they were a little skeptical about it, but uh, once they start doing it, they seem to like it. And 
it does set the tone for the group and the group seems to be more uh, focused I think yeah we started it we were afraid and like I said this was in the 90s we were afraid it was a little new age or something and people would be uncomfortable with it so we didn't start it till week four so that people didn't say oh my gosh what am I getting myself into but I would probably start it in week one if uh, if I were starting a new group uh, and I uh, that's something I would change because it made a huge difference. When before we added mindfulness, people in Northern Virginia would be, they'd have traffic, they'd have people cutting them off, they'd be running late, they'd come in angry, not related necessarily to what their partner is doing, but just, it's just stressful living in traffic area. And then once we would meditate and people would say, oh, I can't wait to get started with that meditation period. <laughs> They needed to be ready and calm before we could talk about how to make changes in your relationship. You needed to be present. And so I really, I'm a huge proponent of that and I've really encouraged people and in my work uh, doing mindfulness earlier than even week four. We also do safety planning. That I found really difficult uh, because many of the couples I've worked with when I'm talking separately about if things do escalate, what are some things you can do? What are things you can put into place? Things are not escalating. I, you know, he's a great guy. I'm never, it's never going to happen. But I really um, push people to think about once this therapy goes on, we're going to talk about difficult issues and you may decide you need a break from each other. Where would you go? What would you do? So we do safety planning. And then uh, one of the things that a lot of our clients have said has made the biggest difference is when they're able to do a negotiated timeout, which we do in week five, which is where they work as a couple. And if it's a group, there might be six couples, but each couple is developing their own plan because in the, in the offender group, you learn you know, to take a timeout, but you have three children and you're angry with each other and one of you decides to go for a walk and take a break well that leaves the other one with three children and so how are we going to negotiate this so that it's everybody gets a little break and it's it's complicated but when people are able to take a break and then come back together and have a time in and finish the conversation or some people decide and we encourage them to hold that conversation to bring into the session next week because it's it's you know red flag uh, conversation that makes a huge difference. So the negotiated timeout is something that I really emphasize. And uh, then we have a session on alcohol and drug use, which is really a motivational interviewing, talking about where alcohol, uh, other drug use, uh, plays a role in your life. And for some people. They don't drink and there's not an issue so we don't do that session if it's single couple uh, for other couples we do recognize that people can make goals and think through where is alcohol in my life and what would i want we ask them to put in a in an envelope that sealed their goal for the by the end of the 18 weeks as far as their use of alcohol and drugs so they can pull it back out at the end and see if they've made progress so um yeah, we also encourage them, of course, and we have all kinds of referrals for other places they can go, but there are people who are able to make changes by making a decision that that's what they want. They want something different. So um, the first six weeks, and that's 
We call this more psychoeducational, therapist-directed uh, versus client-directed in week seven. So that's when, when I'm saying we're doing ongoing screening. Those first six sessions, we're not talking about infidelity. So they, they might continue to bring, but I came here that I wanted to talk about the email I found on her email. We're going to talk about that later, but right now we're going to start with some foundations. And so people have to be patient to get to start talking about what what was on the email so then week yeah week seven to week 18 is much more um client-led so we i meet with one partner my co-therapist meets with the other and we talk about what's the theme of this session so they might be they're they're struggling with trying to figure out how to plan their holidays and so that we might be doing skill building communication building really you know um soften startup whatever about the issue of how to plan your holidays but it's not it's not directed week seven is it's more building on solution focused and uh, skills as a couple therapist with couples who are at a better place than uh and and we're always checking in and checking in at the end of the session and we sometimes say what we say is you know after talking to my co-therapist it seems like this might be a good session for us to just meet separately it seems like there's you know we both talked about both of you have some issues that you want to talk about so I'm going to just meet with you today we don't say well your wife says that you know you've been really agitated uh we want to always be we're always safety focused and thinking about not sending couples home at an increased risk of violence at the end of the session. Well, that makes perfect sense, of course. And uh, no one would ever, you know, fund your program if, right, if they didn't think that you would you know, put safety first. Um, I, I just a lot of people out there, just it's hard for them to wrap their heads around the idea of working with a couple, uh, given some of the stereotypes around domestic violence. Uh, earlier, uh, Sandy, you were talking about the cycle of abuse, right? Well, as you know, you know, there's many cycles of abuse, but most, uh, I think most victims advocates only think there's one. It's just one dominant individual, typically the male who exercises power and control. So it's just, there's a victim and a perpetrator. But as you know, there are a lot of mutual dynamics, which, you know, I guess in the past, it's been referred to as uh, negative reciprocity. And uh, Gottman did a lot of studies, as you know, on different couples dynamics and uh you know i find that the most intriguing challenge in my work whether it's couples or in group with uh offenders is um pointing out these uh these mutual cycles and see how they how they make people's lives so difficult uh and and helping people like identify uh, where they are in that cycle because you know if you try to convince a uh, a man in a battery intervention program who's in a mutually abusive relationship but Perhaps he did more damage because he's stronger, or maybe he's a little bit more controlling than the other person. But you know, the dynamic itself tends to be where, you know, as Goppin described, it's an escalated conflict. And uh, if I'm trying to superimpose over that, you know, that case, uh, a view of, of cycle of violence like Nora Walker talked about, well, then uh, I'm I'm going to have a hard time, you know, convincing this individual that I'm accurately reading his situation. And uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying. So. Do you do, a, do you do some education around the different types of 
cycles, uh, like you know, like Gottman talked about, the different ways that couples engage, you know, in a negative way. Do you go into the minutia of that? I guess is what I'm asking. I, I do sometimes, and uh, uh, sometimes I f think I'm I'm doing a lot more individual work while we're doing couples work, and so I'm and I one of the things I encourage in in our um, outcome research, uh, especially more recently. We have a lot of a qualitative research also, so the clients, what was helpful, what was not, they really appreciate the therapist also being real. So if I'm working with a person and I'm say I'm working with the wife today, uh, I might talk about how I have yelled at my husband and I recognize I've got to be responsible no matter how annoying he can be, I've got to be responsible for myself. So we're not as much, I'm not as much focusing in on the cycle as it is my responsibility. If I don't want to be the kind of woman who's screaming, yelling, cursing at my husband, no matter what he does, I can decide to leave, but I can, but I, uh, but I can't decide, I can't necessarily control him. I can control myself. So we do a lot of, you know, a lot of the uh, women in, uh, especially, but even now, you know, a lot of the women report they thought the husband was the offender and they were the victim and the more they got in this program the more they learned they realized they also were aggressive and psychologically violent even if they weren't hitting uh, um yeah and right. they need to work on their own reactions and their own ways of pursuing or getting what they needed attachment issues also, we've done a lot of, as you know, I'm sure, uh, lots of meta-analyses looking at risk factors for domestic violence. We're continuing to do that. And one of the biggest predictors of violence is the partner's use of violence. So mm -hmm. when you, I have a strong belief that if you just take uh, an offender and you put him in an offender program, and I don't believe that just in my heart is we've got really good data on that. But if you get this person to figure out new strategies to deal with their anger besides hitting, but the partner keeps using violence because they weren't in the program, there's so much more likelihood that the original offender is going to go back and reoffend. And so he, helping both partners, you might look at it and focus on the cycle. I'm more looking at it, each of us looking at our own responsibility and how we um, respond to each other and how we respond to our children and how we respond, you know, to lots of people. And so it's, it's a little different, but, but it's, if you just respond, if you only help an offender in treatment and you never help the so-called, you know, victim, whatever the legal statement is, a victim, but the victim is continuing to use physical violence, psychological violence, name calling, insults, power and control with regards to lots of other things, uh, you're not going to end one person's violence very easily. Right. I, I'm just, uh, it, I just have in my program a couple of sessions where we really kind of break it down. So, for example, we, we talk about the different types of mutually escalating dynamics, so fear dynamics, uh, revenge dynamics, jealousy dynamics, and then we also talk about uh, how... Um, insecure attachment issues could also affect, you know, the way couples relate to each other. And uh, well, you know, it's a 52-week program, so oh, yeah, yeah. Right. so we have lots of time to get into this stuff. Um, but as you know, right? But as you know, Godman, uh, Godman, uh, as I recall, uh, 
you know, one of the key findings from his laboratory studies with couples was that what really predicted long-term happiness and stability for couples wasn't the amount of conflict that they had, but how they resolved the conflict and whether the conflict escalated. So when we talk about mutual dynamics, really focus on not letting the conflict escalate, you know? Yeah. In other words, the, the, uh, like, yeah. So each individual brings to the relationship, their own impulses and, uh, tendencies, but once they start getting into it, then there's a whole dynamic that takes off. And we, you know, we just remind them that once you get going, you know, then it sort of takes a life of its own, you know, like some therapists call these scripts, like it's almost like you're playing out a script. <laughs> so, so the, the last uh, part of the program, then it sounds like it's mostly t- couples talking about their issues. Do you, so do you have like a final sort of formalized final exit interview with them? How does that, how does that, that work? So in this multi-couple group, the last session is a, sometimes it's longer than, normally it's a 90 minute session for the multi-couple group, but sometimes it's longer than that. So each individual says what they got out of the group and what they want to continue to work on. And then everyone else in the room goes around and says uh, what they saw that John got out of the group, the progress they saw John make and what they think John should work on. And so each person does that with each person. It's, it's a very powerful session because people just are amazed that everybody's listening there. They feel they tend to, I mean, people can be in tears in that session when they hear people say, you know, acknowledge that they've seen them take more responsibility, be more accountable. I sometimes we're so hard on ourselves, we don't recognize the progress we're making. And so uh, that's the end session. With a single couple, we really spend a lot of time talking about where they see as uh, next steps. We also have an alumni group. And so people, after the end of the 18 weeks, uh, we've had people be in an alumni group for three years. And so the alumni group has been different in that it the group decide they for one month they schedule as a discussion they decide um, they're going to meet on Tuesdays every week or they're going to meet every other week on Tuesday they pay because that's not part of the program for those sessions and then at the end of that month uh, next we could add more people to that group. Or some people could decide to drop out. So we do it month by month of an ongoing alumni group. And like I said, there have been people in that for several years because they find that just helpful to keep looking at strengths and what's going well and, you know, processing. It's a similar process. It's just um, in order to test effectiveness, you have to have a beginning and an ending. And now that it's just an ongoing program, it can go longer. But, but people, I've... I find people like to know that you're signing up for an 18 week program. And so they kind of made a commitment to 18 weeks, but then they can stay longer mm-hmm. if they choose to uh, versus, uh, I don't know when this is going to end, but yeah, right. That seems like a very good uh, model. So, um, in our concluding part of our podcast, I would like you to just say a little bit about your research. Uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, a lot of our, listeners may not know this because there's a lot of information out there about uh, battery intervention programs, how they're supposedly not very effective. And But research has shown that there are some things that have been proven to be empirically effective by rigorous outcome studies. 
So we know that a motivational interviewing approach works. We also know that uh, acceptance commitment therapy with uh, mindful, a mindfulness meditation component works. And we know that couples therapy works. That couples therapy is one of the three types of approaches that actually reduces rates of domestic violence. So tell us about some of the key research findings that you've that have come out of your laboratory that we can uh, uh, think about. I think one of the, uh, you know, we, as I said, we, we haven't had huge data sets. So that's one of the challenges that all these, uh, all this research, in my opinion, has is uh, getting funding to be able to do a really large scale randomized control trial comparing various kinds of approaches. But, uh, but we've consistently found significant decreases in self-reported and partner-reported physical aggression, psychological aggression. We found uh, self-reported uh, improvements in relationship satisfaction. We feel like that's really important. Uh, more recently, we're doing a lot more qualitative research because we're you know, living in a smaller community. We don't have the large study, we don't have the funding for the randomized control trial. So we're asking people, as I said, at the end of every session to fill out a form. So people are saying things like, uh, one woman said, uh, "What was?" I said, what was helpful? Uh, it made me realize more of what I already knew, that I did have an anger problem, how to control my own anger. It's not just always the men with the anger problem. And uh, so we're, listening to both men and women say, here's one man who says, therapy is teaching me that I do not have to resolve all the issues all the time. Taking a time out is uh, dealing with these issues later on, so I guess that was unexpected. Another man said, I thought that my option was the better one, the best one between having peace and having some extra benefit in general, I choose having a peaceful relationship. So I, that's not that's not the kind of research that might um, make an international impact, but it's what we're learning from hearing from the voices of our participants that uh, this kind of work can make a difference and help people become have more peaceful and healthy lives. So it's it's been an honor and excitement to me to do this work. And I can tell whenever I, I meet you at conferences and we talk about you. The work that you're doing, how excited you are, and your grad students appear to be all in on this and uh, seem to be uh, as excited as, as you are. So the uh, the book for those those of you that are interested uh, by Sandy is called Couples Therapy for Domestic Violence: Finding Safe Solutions, and it's available as we mentioned before. Uh, uh, I guess Amazon and all the usual places, but it's uh, published by the American Psychological Association of 2011. Are you planning on uh, any uh, second edition or updates of the book, Sandy? Well, right now I'm working internationally. So we're very excited. We're coming to San Diego the first week in November to the National Council on Family Relations. And uh, we've, we've got India, Iran, uh, Colombia, Russia. So we're talking international perspectives on domestic violence, I'm writing a chamber, chapter for Kevin Hamburger's book on the way this model has been adapted in different countries. So I'm very interested in how it would need to be and how it is becoming different 
using this model in Colombia, South America versus US. I'm also working with some people at Alliant in California, adapting it to multi-couple group with same sex uh, couples. Cause I've always been gender specific. You got the men and the women. What do you do with the multi-couple group when uh, you have, yeah, gay couples and, or, uh, yeah. So that's, I guess what's exciting to me is new questions and how this need to be different and how can people, I work with people in Canada and they, so we have a, a lesbian couple and they want to join the group. What do you think? I'm like, that's an empirical question. You got six heterosexual couples, one lesbian couple. Do you put one of the partners in with the women and one of the partners in with the men? I, you know, I don't know. So that's what keeps me thinking, oh, I'm not going to retire yet. I want to keep <laughs> doing this work. So <laughs> I hope you don't retire. You're one of the, one of the best out there. Um, you. you know, it sounds like we may need to do another podcast. I'd really want to know more about your work uh, in other countries. That's that, that's very intriguing to me, and I think our our listeners might want to hear about that. So we'll we'll just have to stay in touch, Sandy. I really want to thank you for. Thank you. And I, I do love I do love getting emails. So if there's somebody who listens to this podcast who has a specific question, not I don't want to do therapy on the email, but if, about their work and their couple's work and their you know I'm glad to respond. So thank you, Sandra Stith. Uh, Couples and Family Therapy Program, Kansas State University. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me.